Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you and have this opportunity to open up God's Word together with you. I want to ask you to join me again briefly in a word of prayer, and then we will begin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are small and despised, yet we do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Lord, trouble and anguish have found some of us out, but your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Help us to delight in them and give us understanding that we may live. We pray this all in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want you to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 13 to 16. As always, I want to encourage you to open to the passage so that you can follow along as I read it here in a few moments. And then I also want to encourage you to keep it open in front of you because we'll be looking at the text often in our time together today. In the first 12 verses of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, Peter has described the glorious salvation that we have received if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. And now, in this next section of his letter, he turns to give us instructions on how we should live in light of the glorious salvation that we have received. That's what's going on here as we get into and move into verses 13 to 16. So let's see what God has to say to us this morning about how we should live in light of his glorious salvation. I want you to follow along as I read verses 13 to 16. This is God's word. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." Before I tell you what I think the main point of the passage is, I want to linger momentarily on the very first word of verse 13. I want one of the kids to go ahead and look down at your Bible. The very first word of verse 13. Can one of you shout out what that first word is? Therefore. That's exactly right. Whenever you encounter the word therefore, the question you should ask is, What is the therefore, therefore, right? Whenever you see the word therefore, the author is telling you the consequences that should follow from what has just been said. And what Peter has just said is that God has gloriously saved us. God has caused you, if you've trusted in Jesus, God has caused you already to be born again, right? He chose you for salvation, set you apart by his spirit, cleansed you by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, caused you to be born again, gave you a living hope, 
granted you an imperishable inheritance and guarantees that he will guard you until you receive all that he has promised you. Because of all of that, now do these things. The order is crucial. We have to remember the order. We don't obey in order to be saved. We obey because we've been saved. We obey in response to the grace that we have received because God has graciously and gloriously saved you if you've trusted in Jesus. Now here's how you should respond. And how should we respond? Well, here's the main point of verses 13 to 16 if you're taking notes. Because God has gloriously saved us, we should live radically God-oriented lives. Because God has gloriously saved us, we should live radically God-oriented lives. And we see this radical God-orientation of our lives in the two main commands in these verses. And these two commands will be my two points. The first command, be hopeful. And the second command, be holy. We live radically God-oriented lives by being hopeful and being holy. And we're gonna look at those in order. So first, be hopeful. Look at verse 13 with me. Look at what Peter says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The command to set your hope fully on Jesus' return is the main command. Everything that comes before it modifies it, so we're going to consider that main command first. When I say that we should be hopeful, I don't mean it in the way that it is normally meant, right? I don't mean I want you to live with a sense of wishful thinking, a vague and warm sense that something magical might happen in the future, right? I mean for you to be filled with Christian hope, to be filled with a sense of the certainty and imminence of the return of Jesus Christ and all of the glory that awaits you when he appears. Because of the glorious salvation that God has worked for us, because of all that he's done to bring us into his kingdom, rescuing us out of the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of his glorious light, therefore, fix your mind, fix your gaze, fix your confidence, fix your hope on Jesus' return. The return of Jesus Christ and the grace and glory that he is going to bring to his people is a reality that should govern the day-to-day lives of believers. Already in chapter one, Peter has mentioned the return of Jesus three times already in 12 verses. He's going to mention it four more times in the letter. The return of Jesus Christ is to be ever-present on our minds. It is to be the treasure of our souls. It is to be where we place our hope in life, We're to live with this in mind, friends. Jesus Christ is coming back. This isn't a wish. This isn't something that we want to be true but can't be sure will be true. It is a certainty that simply hasn't happened yet. And that's why Peter tells us to set our hope fully on that day. 
you can set your hope fully on it because it is guaranteed to happen. Right? We can't miss how this flies in the face of conventional wisdom, right? Where are you not supposed to put all of your eggs? In one basket. Don't put all of your eggs in one basket. This is exactly how we're taught to think about financial investments, right? Don't put all your investments into one stock, one fund, or one sector. You need to diversify your portfolio so that if one of your stocks, one of your funds, one of your sectors that you have invested in fails, you have money elsewhere invested that will be protected. And listen, hey, when it comes to investing money, I'm not an expert, but I think in a fallen world, not putting all your eggs in one basket is a good idea. But when it comes to hoping in Jesus, you should absolutely put all of your eggs into one basket, his return. You can put all of your hope eggs into his second coming because his second coming is the only basket that is guaranteed to return 100% of the money that is invested into it. Friends, I wanna ask you the question. Are you fixing your hope entirely on that day? Or are you letting the proverbial wisdom of our world influence how you're following Jesus? Are you putting a small investment into Jesus in order to see what the return is like and then maybe make a decision for a larger investment in the future? Are you diversifying your hope? Think about things like health and wellness, physical pleasure, wealth and comfort, or professional achievement, achievement, right? These things aren't inherently wrong in and of themselves, but subconsciously we as Christians can begin to put too much hope into those things. Friends, Jesus' second coming and the grace and glory that is going to be revealed on that day is the only certain investment for your hope that exists. It is the only thing that was meant to bear the burden, the weight of your hope, because only he can fully deliver on your hope. I trust you've realized this in your own life, right? If you've lived long enough, no amount of physical pleasure has ever fully satisfied you. No amount of money has ever brought anyone complete satisfaction. No amount of health and wellness has ever brought full healing and enabled someone to live the rest of their lives. I saw a reel uh, recently. I just thought it was funny. It made me chuckle. The girl was like, do you know you can get eight hours of sleep a night and drink tons of water and eat clean foods that are organic and avoid all toxins? You're still going to die. Like, like it's kind of funny because it's like, yeah, like not a bad thing to kind of do those things, but like where is your hope? Like no one has ever lived forever. It's never brought complete Healing, no amount of professional achievement has ever produced complete contentment. Those things are all good gifts from God, but they were never meant to bear the weight of our hope. They were meant to direct us to God himself, who gives himself to us as the gift who fulfills all of our hopes, desires, and longings. Friends, what do we do when we meet each week? Every seven days, It's a day for us as believers to reorient our gaze, reorient our hopes, asking God again to to fix our hope again fully 
on the grace that's going to be revealed when Jesus Christ returns. You should be asking yourself, even as the word is preached, the songs are sung, the prayers are prayed, you should be asking the Spirit to show you the ways in which you might be diversifying your hope in ways that you shouldn't be and to give you the strength and grace to put your hope fully on Jesus and fully on his return. Look, we need to recognize that this isn't easy to do. Day in and day out, we're tempted by the world outside of us and the remaining flesh within us to put our hope in things other than Jesus, which is why every single day we need to be preparing our minds for battle. The two phrases that come before the command tell us how we set our hope fully on Jesus' return. Kids and teens, look at verse 13 with me. Tell me, what word appears twice in verse 13? Just shout it out when you find it. What word appears twice in verse 13? Abram. Mind. The word mind, right? It appears twice. Preparing your minds for action and being sober Minded, The Christian life, friends, the way that we go about setting our hope fully on Jesus' return is not a mindless pursuit. Some people like to cast Christians as people who have checked their minds at the door and who mindlessly go about believing things that have no basis in reality, but nothing could be further from the truth. Christians are to be fully mentally engaged in the nature and existence of God fully and mentally engaged in the nature of reality and the spiritual war that is happening around us and fully mentally engaged with the future reality of Jesus' coming. Peter uses two super helpful images here. He tells us to prepare our minds for action, as Jonathan already pointed out. The literal translation is, gird up the loins of your mind, right? The KJV, gird up the loins of your mind. Get that mind ready, friends. Right, people wore tunic in Peter's day to gird up the loins, meant to pull it up, tuck it in so that you could run or move with ease. Just like in the Exodus, as they ate the Passover, they were, to, they were to eat it in haste with the sandals on their feet, staff in their hand, belt ready, right? In the same way, we're to get our minds mentally prepared each and every day to set our hope fully on Jesus Christ. Not only that, but we're to be sober-minded, Using the image here of intoxication with alcohol, we're not to let our minds become intoxicated by, dulled by, or deadened by the world and all that it offers. And this preparing for the, of the mind for action, both to fix our, our eyes on the return of Christ and to fight against the mental intoxication that the world tempts us with, is something that has to happen regularly. If we're not preparing our minds regularly, we won't set our hope where it should be set. All right, I, I keep a running list of things that need to be done around our house so that when I get time to do them, I can complete them. So things like hanging sword shelves in our shed or hanging pictures around the house or tightening screws on a table that, that was loose. I can't tell you how many times that I have had the time to fix things. And I'm like, yes. I can finally get this project done. And then I go to get my drill to do those things because I need my drill to accomplish them and I find that I'm being completely thwarted by the fact that I didn't prepare my drill by ensuring that the battery was charged. 
And now I've got to wait two hours for the battery to charge, and now I don't have time to do the thing that I wanted to do. That simple lack of preparation kept me from being able to use a drill for what it was meant to do. Friends, in the same way, if we aren't preparing our minds like a tool, keeping it sharpened like a blade, if we're allowing it to become intoxicated by the world, we simply won't keep our hope fixed on Jesus and on his return. So we need to ask the question, are there inputs in your life that are dulling your mind and hindering your ability to put your hope fully on Jesus? Think of alcohol. Have you gotten to the point where you need a drink at the end of each day, or you get annoyed when people point out, hey, I've seen you drinking a lot regularly, right? Wine is not inherently sinful. It can even gladden the heart from time to time, but regular use of it dulls the mind. It keeps you from making good decisions. Or think of entertainment, of other inputs. Are you filling up the empty pockets of your schedule with video games, TV shows, podcasts, audiobooks, movies, YouTube, right? And these even may be good podcasts, good books or shows. But if you put all of the time that you spend watching or listening to things on a scale with Bible reading, prayer, or singing to the Lord on the other side, how out of balance is it, would you say? I'm gonna leave that question to your hands. I don't know. I do know what I have found in my own life I am totally susceptible to putting an audiobook on or a helpful YouTube video on or a podcast on in all of the open pockets of time that I have. I want to be listening to stuff. But what I found for me is it has become mental candy. I actually not even, I don't even know that I'm learning anything from it anymore. It's just I've gotten to the point where it's like I want to hear something. I can't have moments of silence. I need to hear things. What the Lord has shown me is, hey, those pockets of time are great pockets of time for you to meditate on the verse from 1 Peter that you memorized, or to pray to me and ask me for help, or, or ask for help on behalf of, of other people, right? Are we filling up all those pockets of time that are keeping us from even thinking about the Lord, from even thinking about the hope that is to be fully revealed to us when Jesus returns? Listen, we need to recognize Satan is a master anesthesiologist, right? He is looking for ways to use the things in the world to slowly dull your hope from heaven, your hope for heaven. He just wants you to get on a slow drip. He's not gonna come in and say, turn away from the Lord right now. And you're gonna be like, yes, I give up my hope in Jesus. And I put, he's just gonna put this in your life, slow drip. I'm gonna put this in your life, slow drip. So you get to the point where you're like, wait, am I even awake anymore? Do I, I, I'm, not even, I'm not even thinking about this hope anymore. He's a master anesthesiologist and in time he can put you completely to sleep. So how are you doing preparing your mind for action? Kids, another question. Hey, what tools has God given us in order to prepare our minds? Shout them out if you know them. What did you say? Praying. Who said Bible? Right up here. Bible, praying. The Holy Spirit. Yes, Lord. New covenant reality. We're going to talk more about the Holy Spirit's work in our life. Abram? The church, yes, fellowship with other Christians, gathering weekly. God has given us these tools to keep our mind sharp, to keep our hope fixed on heaven. So as we're thinking about all the other inputs in our life that could be dulling our hope, we want to think about those inputs that God has given us in order to sharpen our mind and to keep it fixed on the return 
of Jesus Christ, right? Let's keep our minds fixed because God has gloriously saved us. We should live radically God-oriented lives, first by being hopeful, second by being holy. Look at verses 14 to 16. Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Just as an obedient child trusts that their parents have their best in mind and so obey their parents' instruction, so we who God has caused to be born again into his, fam his family and now have become his children, now trust in God and know that he has our best in mind and are seeking to honor him by living holy lives. Look at what Peter says again. Verse 14. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So what Peter's referring to here is how these Christians lived before God saved them. He's saying, hey, before, before God saved you, you were controlled by all sorts of sinful passions. You lived for yourself. You were your own God. You followed your own truth. You sought to be authentic and true to yourself. You lived for the next drink. You lived for the next meal. You lived for the next shopping trip, the next vacation. You were controlled by your sexual impulses and urges and by anger and lying and power and grief. But now that God has caused you to be born again, you're no longer controlled by those things. And the reason believers need to, be need to be told not to be conformed to the passions of their former ignorance is because we're going to be tempted by our flesh on a regular basis to give in. Right? When God causes us to be born again, we aren't suddenly freed from all of the effects of sin. Right? We'll still face temptation from outside of us and temptation from within throughout the course of our lives. And the call for Christians is to put those passions off, to not be conformed to them. Friends, I have to ask you out of love, are you doing this? Are you putting off these passions that you were once controlled and conformed to? Are you fighting against and putting off patterns of thinking, speaking, and acting that God says are wrong. Hopefully this is not a sign of what the Spirit is doing here causing the lights to go out. Go out. It's not some uh, metaphor for what's going on here. Now the Lord speaks light. Let there be light and there is light. Thank you, there's light on this side. The light, Lord willing, will eventually reach this side. But we have the light of God's word as a lamp in the darkness. I'm gonna stop now. We will back out of that metaphor seeking here for a moment. Are you fighting against, are you fighting against and putting off patterns of thinking speaking and acting that God says are wrong? Are you putting off lust or are you being conformed to its hellish image? Are you uprooting bitterness or are you allowing it to poison your soul? Kids, are you cutting off yelling, at, yelling in anger at your parents? Being mean to your siblings? Maybe being jealous and, and envious of what they have and you don't have? Putting these things off isn't a matter of little importance. It is vital. Notice the power these passions have. Peter says, do not be conformed 
to the passions of your former ignorance. Those passions have the power to imperceptibly shape us and pull us away from God, right? You've seen the power of sin to imperceptibly pull you away from, uh, pro- from God if you've been to the beach, right? If you've ever been to the beach, right, you, you, you set up shop on the beach, you eventually get up from your towel, you go down to the ocean to swim, you get in, you swim for a bit, and then you look up in order to wave to your family or friends who are on the beach, and you look up and you're like, I don't recognize anybody. Where did my towel go? Where did my, you know, where did my, uh, the, the, the tarp over where I was sitting go? Like, where is that? Where's the canopy? And then you realize, oh my gosh, I've been dragged down the beach. I didn't even realize that the current was pulling me this way. In the same way, as we give in to the passions of the flesh that we were once controlled by, those passions still have a power to pull us away from God, even imperceptibly, right? We need to fight to get out of the current and instead to be holy. Look at verse 15. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Instead of falling back into old ways of living, we're to strive to emulate God's character in how we live. God's character brilliantly and perfectly displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be the model for how God's children are to follow him and for how we live. We're to be holy as he is holy. I want you to notice why we're to emulate God's holy character. What does Peter say? Since or because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Peter grounds the call to holiness in a passage from Leviticus? What on earth does a passage from Leviticus, given to the nation of Israel, have to do with us today and to these Christians to whom Peter was speaking? There's so many things that we could say, but I want to keep this big picture so that you can see how glorious this call to holiness is is this call to emulate God's holiness is central to God's purpose in creating mankind. It is why he created us. You go back to the very beginning, right? God created Adam and Eve to display his glory by living according to his commands. They were to live under God's gracious and loving rule by by obeying his commandments. They were to multiply and fill the earth and raise up children who did the same until the whole earth was full of God's glory. They failed. All mankind was plunged into sin. Now all of us come into the world opposed to God, not seeking his holiness, and we are opposed to living under his gracious rule, but God wasn't done with us. He called Abraham, and through Abraham created the nation of Israel, a people rescued out of slavery, who were then brought into the Eden-like land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were given God's law, and they were called to display God's glory by living in obedience to his laws, just like the laws from Leviticus. You shall be holy, for I am holy. But like Adam and Eve, the nation of Israel failed. They rejected God's laws, and like Adam and Eve, were cast out of Eden, so Israel was cast out of Canaan. But then God sends Jesus, the long-promised Savior, who was born 
from the nation of Israel. He's the one who perfectly kept God's commands, succeeding where Adam failed and where Israel failed. He then bore the judgment we deserve for failing to keep God's law. He bore that judgment on the cross. He then rose from the dead, displaying his victory over sins and over death and over hell and promising that all who trust in him would be forgiven of their sins and brought into the redeemed people of God, among whom God was fulfilling his ultimate purposes in creating mankind. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ by faith are born again. Through faith in Christ, God makes us his very own children and gives us the great privilege of becoming members of a restored humanity, a people who have been reconciled to God and who now have the great privilege of displaying his glory to the world by living holy lives. Right, the nation of Israel, we could say so much about the nation of Israel, but one thing we can't say is that the nation of Israel foreshadowed what God would ultimately do in the church. Just as the nation of Israel was called to be set apart from the nations around them and display God's glory to them by living in obedience to his commands, so the church is to be set apart from the world around us, to be in the world but not of the world, and display God's glory and goodness to the world by living in obedience to his commands. What makes the church different from the old covenant nation of Israel is that God has not given us his law you shall be holy for I am holy on tablets of stone. He has written his law on our very hearts. In the new covenant, God has given us the great gift of the Holy Spirit. He pours out his spirit on us, filling us with his spirit, frees us from the power of sin so that we now delight in and desire to obey God's law. Friends, I want you to notice this. Christianity isn't just about what you're saved from, it's also about what you're saved to. You're saved to holiness, to God's glorious purpose for you, to experience life and life abundantly. We're saved from judgment and to holiness. This isn't the first time that Peter has said this in his letter. Look back with me at chapter one, verse two. We are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Your holiness and mine is central to God's purpose in saving you. J.C. Ryle in his book Holiness said of the church, we must be holy because this is the one grand end and purpose for which Christ came into the world. He came to save and sanctify a people for himself who were set apart from the world around us by living holy lives. I wonder what you think of when you hear the call for Christians to live holy lives. What, what comes to mind? What types of images come into your mind? When you hear about living holy lives, what's the first thought? I think that after the fall, a negative and completely wrong view of holiness is now endemic to all mankind. I think it's something that even Christians can get wrong. What comes to mind when you think of holiness? Here's some things that first came to my mind as your pastor. Unfortunately, I'm going to admit this to you now. 
drab, boring, mauve. Hope you don't like that color. Mauve. It just feels to me like blah, mauve, gray, blah. Or maybe you're thinking austere, severe, Pharisees, strict, lifeless, dull. Who would want to do that? If that's what comes to mind, you don't understand holiness. I don't understand holiness. Holiness is an explosion of color. It's life. It's goodness. It's abundance. It's flourishing, thriving, joy abounding. The call to be holy is a call to enter into and experience the life of God in our own lives. Our mistaken view of holiness can be traced all the way back to the garden. What did Satan get Eve to do? He got her to view God's commands and the holiness inherent in them as restricting, severe, freedom-stealing, joy-stealing. If she could just reach out and take the sparkly treat that God told her not to take, that she would be happy, but we know the story. She didn't find happiness, but sorrow. She didn't find life, but death. The sparkly, colorful, and seemingly freedom and, freedom and joy of sin is an illusion. Satan has tricked us into thinking that holiness is lifelessness, when holiness is the path to abundant life and glorious joy. And here's the great news for the Christian. God has not only called you to holiness, he has also empowered you to fulfill the command that he has given. Augustine once said, uh, that he, uh, Augustine, Augustine once wrote, I think it was in his confessions, God, command what you will and give what you command. God has commanded us to holiness and has given us the power of his spirit to carry it out. And notice where this holiness is to extend to. Look at verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. We're to set our hope fully on Jesus and be holy in all our conduct. A radical God orientation of how we are to live now. We're empowered by God's spirit to display God's goodness and glory to the world by obeying his commands in every area of life. Your dating relationships, be holy, for I am holy. Your work life, be holy as God is holy. In your singleness, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, when you're online, when you're at the store or at the gym, in all that you do, be holy, for God is holy. And he has called you to life. And he has given you the power to obey his commands. And I want you to think here of four helps, four aids to help you in your holiness in the week to come. There are four R's if you want to write these down. First, remember. Remember that the Spirit of God lives in you. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Remember that God has given you his spirit. You have the very presence and power of God within you, cultivating a moment-by-moment -moment awareness 
of God's presence will aid us in living holy lives. Remember that God is with you. And I'm just gonna tack on real quick. Remember what he set you free from. There, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ, and he's given you his spirit to free you from the power of sin in your life. When we continue being conformed to the passions of our former ignorance rather than living holy lives, it's as though God has walked into a prison. He has set everyone free. They're free. They were on life, you know, death row. He opens a door, releases their chains. They're free to go, but we're just sitting there holding on to the bars. And he's like, I don't know if you noticed, the door's open. You can walk out. Remember, you're no longer enslaved to sin. You have the power to obey God by God's spirit. Second, request. Ask for God's help. God is with you through his spirit and has given you 24 access, 24-7 access to his presence. You can go to God anytime to ask for his help, especially those times where you know that you're going to face temptation or are in the midst of temptation. Request God's help. Lord, I'm struggling right now. I feel like I want to give in to the urge of lashing out in impatience and being angry with the people around me. Fill me with your spirit. Give me your spirit of forbearance and peace that I might be holy in this moment as you have called me to. Remember God is with you. Request his help. Third, relate. Relate to other Christians. Battling against sin, fighting for holiness, isn't something you're called to do alone. You have all these shows on TV now about like surviving in the wilderness on your own, like alone, outlast or survivor, right? Where you're responsible to fend for yourself in order to win, right? That's not what God has called you to as a Christian. He's given you the church and other relationships in order to help you be holy as God is holy. And he's given you in other people's lives to help them with the very same thing. You need to have Christians in your life who know your struggles, your temptations, your joys, all of it right, who, share, who you share openly with and who can ask you anything and who can walk alongside you and encourage you to keep pursuing holiness. Remember, request, relate. Finally, rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice and give thanks for all that God has done and is doing for you. Friends, the more you grow in gratitude for God's work in your life, which requires thinking about what God has done for you, the more attractive God will become and sin will be seen in all its ugliness. Rejoicing in God's work in your life and in others cuts off temptation's air supply. And one thing you can absolutely rejoice about is that God has also promised to forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, in future, as Christians united to Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. We have the good news that when we fail to be holy, as we will from time to time, we can turn to the Lord who has promised to forgive us of our sins and know that he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins. As we close, we need to remember our status. Remember that we are God's children. Again, J.C. Ryle said in his book on holiness, just as a parent is pleased with the efforts of his little child to please him, though it be only by picking a daisy or walking across a room, so is our Father in heaven pleased with the poor performances of his believing children. He looks at the motive 
the principle and the intention of their actions and not merely at their quantity and quality. And he regards them as members of his own dear son. Friends, think of what John says in 1 John 3. We are now God's children and what we will be hasn't yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And God has promised to preserve us for that day. And because of God's glorious salvation of us, we can and should live radically God-oriented lives by being hopeful and being holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have filled us with your spirit and given us the great and precious promises of the gospel and of the knowledge that you will be faithful even when we're faithless. But help us to not use our faithlessness from time to time as an excuse to give up on pursuing holiness. You've called us to holiness. You've called us to set our hope fully on Jesus Christ and you've given us your spirit to pursue it. So help us to arise as we sang earlier and to pursue that holiness with all the zeal uh, of the Lord, with your passion and all of your purposes. And as we uh, will fail from time to time, we pray that you would remind us of your love. And we pray ultimately, as we set our hope on Jesus's return, that Jesus would come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.